everybody! <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Uh, now what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we get people to come and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. We're a live show and we're also a podcast. And so tonight we're going to be recording three podcasts, which means we have three acts tonight for you. Uh, so... The night tonight is Tragic Autumn, that is the theme. Uh, we've done some, this is the fourth of our seasonal shows this year. We started with the winter and we're ending with the autumn, which I think is appropriate for a night about tragedy to start in the bleakest time and end just when we're getting back there again, just when things are starting to die and things are starting to sort of fall from the trees. I'm going to set up this next act. I'm not going to really be in it very much. Um, but what I would like to say is two things. First of all, at Stand Up Tragedy, one of the things we like to do is invite people to come up on stage who, are not, uh, who have not really been on stage before very often. The first two performers you saw tonight, they were uh, performers who've been on stage loads. And so uh, it, was, it was great the way you reacted to them. The people who might come up in this uh, part of the show, they're less kind of used to being on stage. So we need to make it a safe space for them and be kind of welcoming to them. You know, you can laugh at the word safe space. I can see some of you laughing at the, that, those words. Unlucky is something I believe in. Uh, and also, uh, safety is a good thing, you weirdos. Uh, so yeah, um, the second thing I want to say about this act is it's called Tragic Schooling, and it is going to be hosted by Liz Bailey. Now, some, some Liz, Liz Bailey fans in the house. So Liz has been with Stand Up Tragedy for the last four years. She's been an amazing uh, rock that, that Stand Up Tragedy has stood on. She has, uh, in many ways, stood on. Uh, she, she has kept me together, and I'm an all-over-the-place kind of guy, so I need that. Um, and she has been an amazing part of the team. She's performed with us, but she's kept the time. She's kept things in order, and she's just been an amazing person. She's an amazing friend of mine as well. She is going to be hosting this act of the show. Uh, she is an academic, uh, and so this is tragic schooling because people have to go back to school. She'll tell you what the act is going to really be about, um, but I'd just like you to give her a really warm round of applause and welcome Liz Bailey! We're going to use this one instead because I, I can't use that one. So. Unlike Dave's compare style, mine involves a, a binder rather than a clipboard. Um, so this section uh, involves academics and educators talking about the tragedy of the welfare state. So we're a night called Stand Up Tragedy. This is going to be tragic. Um, it's looking at ideas, perceptions, political identities, and the impact of those policies. So it might get a bit heavy, but hopefully it may be funny. It'll certainly be tragic. It's going to be personal, and hopefully you'll learn something. And uh, I'll be kicking us off. So this is part lecture, part true story, part origin story, part manifesto. It's about how I came to be doing social policy and why I think it matters. And it's the tragedy of the welfare state because I think in the last 30 years, one of the great tragedies has been the demise of the welfare state. Now, this is something that's quite contested within the field, whether we think actually that the 1980s were as problematic as we really think they were. The end of institutions, or was it about the ideas and words? But ideas and words are important because it's how it changes what we say when we say welfare. In the US, we talk about welfare queens. In the UK, we talk about welfare scroungers. When we talk about healthcare, we talk about efficiency. When we talk about education, we talk about human capital development. But that's not what a welfare state is. That's not its intention. A welfare state is a state that looks out for the welfare of its people. And that's what I think we lost in the 80s. So, the story starts for me like a lot of these I became a socialist stories, you know, in the pub, putting the worlds to rights, up the revolution. Um, but when it, all these new ideas, they're really exciting. They're really challenging when you're a student, or so I tell my students, or so I hope they think. I studied government, I studied history, I liked political philosophy. Yes, some people do. And the idea of the social contract. 
This is the idea that we enter into a contract with the state. We give something up to get protection from the state. The state should be protecting and promoting our welfare. Or so I think. Um, I was also highly influenced by the TV show The West Wing. <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm, I'm noticing maybe some people might be familiar with it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, arts and cinema are, are a reoccurring theme throughout this, so hold on to your butts. Um, but it showed for me an idealized vision of what the US could be, what a US president could be. He could be a socialist, he could be a leftist, he could be someone who cared. And I wanted to be Leo McGarry. I wanted to be the chief of staff. I wanted to be putting the world to rights without the alcoholism and heart condition. <laughs> Little alcohol problem. But history matters in all of this. And I was studying history alongside this, and I got obsessed with the creation of the welfare state. Uh, yes, we do have one in the US, sort of. Kind of. What we did in the 30s. I'm talking about President FDR and the creation of the New Deal. Well, there's actually two New Deals. But like any good social policy, it was born of economic and social change. In this case, it was the crashing of the banks in 1929, which left people unemployed, homeless, starving, and dying. A bit like the state of nature. So what are you going to do? Well, the first part of the New Deal, they throw money at the banks to try to jumpstart your failing economy. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it sounds familiar to me. If you don't learn from the past, you are bound to repeat it. And 80 years later, there's a lot of parallels between the Great Depression and the recent economic crisis. The second bit, the second bit in the New Deal, that's the fun bit. That is social policy. That is social security. That's about protecting people who can't work. If you're sick, if you're old, if for any reason you can't work, someone is there to care. The state is there to care. It's a safety net that catches you. But it's not just that. It's also about job creation. They had this amazing entity called the Works Project Administration. And it, if you go around the US, you can still see what they made. These are epic bridges, epic roads, epic buildings, things that were created with a sense of community and creativity and innovation. It was about jobs, but it was about a certain type of job, a job that mattered. But then my favorite bit is Federal Project One. This is the Federal Art, Music, Theater, and Writers Project. There's a really good film about this um, called The Cradle Will Rock. Anybody seen it? It's really good. It's about the Federal, federal Theater Project, and it's about what, it would, what it's like when a state actually cares about artists, and you don't just sort of struggle out with a flyer in a bucket like you do in Edinburgh. <laughs> so, that's what I wanted to do. That, that, that was my, my plan. I was going to do arts and education, and I did a few uh, political gigs in the US, and I worked for a few not-for-profits in New York doing arts and education-based um, programs. Um, I think I might have missed the boat on socialism in the US. <laughs> I'm not sure though, but um, it, at that time, um, George W. Bush was president. So he didn't really want to be a liberal, particularly one as red as me. So what did I do? I thought I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I'll come where there was a real socialist revolution that's still going on. <laughs> Don't laugh, that's what I thought. So I came here to my adopted country. I came over to do my master's and see how a socialist revolution started and carried on. And when I started my master's, that, that's how it was. I was learning about all these amazing Fabian and socialist ideals, studying in the great shadow of William Beveridge and Sidney and Beatrice Webb, learning about the five giants, the five giant evils that welfare will fight, want, squalor, idleness, ignorance, and disease. I don't care for the idleness one. <laughs> but all the other ones, yeah, let's take them. And we did. Atlee's government came on this great wave of people power, and they came in, and they created mass education with the 1944 Act. They created the National Health Service in 1948, and they created Social Security in 46 and 48. And that's all about caring about the full person in all their aspects. And this is what I say to my students. This is the three pillars of welfare. It's the bit that I tell them they need to really remember. Because it's the kind of society that we want to build, or at least they want it to build. 
but economic, social, political change and war can lead to great social policy change. But it doesn't always go the way of the great golden age of welfare in the UK or the New Deal in the US. Fear can also turn people inwards. It's less about togetherness and community and more about individualism and restraint. Words and ideas have power. That was the dark side of my journey. It was like I was being teased by this golden ideal whilst being told it was no more. The institutions were there, but what about the ideas? Now there's a lot of debate about this, restructuring, retrenchment. I'm actually teaching this to my class right now. That's a mind fuck. Teaching it to your students while preparing for a thing, for a gig, for your thing that you do on stand-up tragedy on a stage. It, trust me, it's, it's very complicated to pick out which way you're gonna go with this, but make sure you don't accidentally do stand-up comedy in your class. Um, the welfare state institutions are still there. So I thought the welfare state institutions mean that the welfare state is still there. Yes, but no. The ideas and the words had changed. Individualism rather than community. Efficiency rather than equality. But at the time, there was a lot to take in. I, I didn't really see the impact. And this is actually one of the great tragedies of contemporary history, that we don't always see the change for what it is. New Labour was in power, and they seemed OK. They seemed to care about things, like the basics of the welfare state. Yeah, it wasn't OK. I worked in education policy, and I carried on. But then there was this election, and there was a coalition. I started my PhD, and I started studying 1980s education policy in the UK. Because I wanted to know where we were coming from, so I knew where we were going to. But I didn't really get it, the tragedy of socialism, that it had come to an end until I watched a film. Yep, another film. The Spirit of 1945. Has anyone seen that film? Yeah. Yep. Did you feel empowered by it? Yeah? I think that's what it was supposed to do, but that's not the impact it had on me. The first half of the film, it was great. Laid out the creation of the welfare state, all of the good things, interviews with the people who were involved. It was really dynamic and amazing. And then, like a punch to the gut, it switches to the 1980s. And it's all about the privatization movements in industry and in services. And it put in clear relief the change in ideas, the end of the socialist utopia. And it broke me. I cried. I cried a lot. Like, I cried for days. I'm not even kidding. I, I, I thought about giving up, uh, stopping my PhD, walking away from policy, because what did it matter? We didn't move forward. No country actually seemed to be different. We all seemed to be doing this on our own. I was, I was devastated. But then Margaret Thatcher died. <laughs> And it flicked a switch. I felt instantly better. It's like some sort of symbolic bookend. It's the end of a narrative arc. It's a, it's a good plot twist, if you will. Um, somehow the death of this key figure of neoliberalism, it, it meant something to me. It meant the end of something. And I thought, no, no. It probably can't be again, as Ken Loach would say. But maybe it can be something different. I'm not sure socialism, as it once were, can be again. But I don't think the neoliberal focus on the individual and reliance on the market can either, even though what's happening with the current government makes it look like it might be. But I don't know what it will be. And that's why I study education, because it allows us to have a critical mind and speak to power. And that's why I study history, because then we can see what's been before till we know what's going to happen now. And it's why I'm political because I think it matters. So people have been talking to me about Corbin mania, and that seems like it might be a hopeful thing. But I'm afraid to get my hopes up again. What I can say is that if this is a question of ideas, it's, it's time for some new ones. Some of hope, some of community, some of welfare and well-being. Those messages of the 30s and 40s shouldn't be lost. So I'm not sure what comes next. But I think that's up to all of us 
and the ideas we embrace and the language we use to construct our world. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm not actually leaving the stage, so I mean, keep clapping. I, I like it. But, but, but really, really, no, please, please. Um, I hope you're all warmed up because the people that I've invited to talk are really brilliant and wonderful people who all really care about what they do. And they don't do this normally. I've been doing this for four years. I've performed in Edinburgh. I've performed here. These people haven't, but what they do, it's worth hearing. So the first person I want to bring up to the stage is Ricky Dean. Wait, wait, there's more. He studies, he's an academic like me, he's in my department, he's like my PhD brother, because we started together. Um, Ricky studies approaches to public participation in government decisions about social policy, and he's gonna look at public involvement in welfare state decision making, and why it might be, or might not be, a good thing. So you can find Ricky at uh, personal.lse.ac.uk slash Dean RJ, thanks Ricky. <laughs> or on Twitter at Ricky underscore Dean. Ladies and gentlemen, Ricky Dean! So, as a social scientist, I brought some PowerPoint slides. Um, there aren't actually facilities for PowerPoint here, so Liz is gonna be my lovely assistant. I'm gonna have to command her to change the slides, which I hope won't look too strange when I do the feminist part of this uh, presentation. So, Liz, go. <laughs> so I'm calling this, part of, uh, this presentation The Tragedy of Public Participation or How I Waste My Life. Liz. <laughs> so these are some of the, uh, well, Liz already spoke about these. These are some of the architects of the welfare state. And they look like an austere bunch, but they're some heroes of mine. Um, as academics, politicians, social reformers, they campaigned for changes that have improved the lives of millions of people over the last 70 years. But I want to take power away from these we know best do gooders and give it to the public. Power to the people. Uh, okay. As you can see, I'm not very experienced with these microphones. Um, usually we just shout at academic conferences. <laughs> so I want to tell. I want to demonstrate the absurdity of this quest to give power to the people by getting you all to engage in what philosophers call a thought experiment. So I'd like you to all picture your next door neighbour. Maybe they just got home from work. They stepped in dog poo on the way home. So now they're standing out on the front step and they're kind of holding one shoe in one hand, they're wearing one shoe, they're frustrated, they're trying to clean poo off the other shoe with their stick. Now I'd like you to imagine that person being involved in important government decisions about arcane aspects of pensions policy. <laughs> so you probably see there's three problems with this idea. Reason number one, <laughs> your next door neighbor is most likely an idiot. Your next door neighbor, for instance, could be Anna. So Anna earns 45,000 pounds working in advertising. So essentially she gets paid for finding new ways to irritate us whilst we're trying to watch TV. <laughs> Um, but instead of being grateful for this opportunity to make herself wealthy whilst being a nuisance, this is what she said to the London Evening Standard recently. Sometimes I think I would be better off just giving up my job and living on benefits. Now, so Anna wants to give up her salary, which puts her in about the top 15% of the income distribution in order to live on job seekers' allowance. So she thinks she'd be better off on about £70 a week than £700 a week. So we know why Anna went into advertising and didn't become an accountant. <laughs> but we shouldn't judge her, because this kind of magnitude of idiocy is really rife among the great British public. So 30% of us, for instance, think that we spend more on job seekers' allowance than we do on pensions policy, when we spend 15 times more on pensions policy than job seekers' allowance. And on average, I think the, the public think we about 24 pounds of every 100 pounds spent on uh, welfare benefits is claimed fraudulently, when the DWP estimates, it estimates that it's about 70p in every 100 pounds. 
So this is the first reason, all right? The public just doesn't know what it's talking about. <laughs> reason number two, your next door neighbor is likely crazy. <laughs> so I logged on to NHS Citizen recently. Uh, NHS Citizen is, uh, it's, it's probably like the biggest participation initiative you've never heard of. Um, so it's NHS England's attempt to create this participation architecture so that you can get involved in shaping the healthcare system in this country, not that you care. Um, there was a two year long open participatory process to design this participatory process. And so they weren't seen as controlling the process, NHS England outsourced it to some very earnest participation non-profit organisations. And uh, I played a very small role in this, so I thought I'd log on and see how it was going, see what's happening on the website. And so the first issue thread that I clicked on, essentially it was mainly populated by conspiracy theory nuts. Um, so one poster complained. I get the feeling that, as usual, NHS wants to control everything, and that's the real problem. What do patients know anyway? NHS really has to get away from this we know best attitude. And then <laughs> another poster sort of expressed agreement by talking about a completely contradictory point, which was this. The team, so they're talking about the non-profit organisations here. The team have appointed themselves as gatekeepers in this whole process, and they're some bunch of privateers, not even direct employees of our NHS. Now, you can always tell a well-reasoned argument when someone feels it's necessary to use multiple exclamation marks and uh, block capitals to make their point. <laughs> but in terms of absolute lunacy, this was my favourite post. Next one. Boss? <laughs> yes, sir. Them mushrooms is revolting against boss. What is it this time? They're claiming they're being kept in the dark. Of course they are. They're mushrooms. Just because their existence enables us to make a living don't mean that they're entitled to be part of the decision-making process in any meaningful way. Okay, boss. So, you have to wonder about how you can productively engage in a conversation <laughs> with someone who frequently refers to themselves as a mushroom. But the moderators on the NHS platform always respond to these people with politeness and thank them for their contributions. <laughs> it's like a kind of depressing vignette for the inability of participatory democracy to deal with weirdos. <laughs> so we've seen that the public is stupid and crazy, but I saved the worst till last. Reason number three. Your next door neighbour is most likely evil. So I'd like to see a more feminist welfare state. One that, for instance, uh, recognises the informal care work that is mainly carried out by women in our society and so currently goes unrewarded. Oh, not yet. <laughs> Too early. So, I mean, unless you've been living under a rock since the advent of social media, you probably know what happens to people who campaign on feminist issues, especially women. Um, and, I mean, if women are, have an online presence and make kind of any kind of political speeches, then they're often subject to insults, rape threats, death threats, um, basically telling them to shut up and know their place. And I thought it would maybe be funny to read out some of the abusive tweets that I've seen sent to female academics, campaigners and politicians, but reading through them was just really very grim and depressing. Um, in one instance, Someone designed this game called uh, Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian. You can, you can probably see that the aim of the game is to click on her face to hit her. And as you, the more times you hit her, the more kind of bloodied and bruised her face becomes. Now, the irony of this game is that the man-child who designed it um, was really upset with Anita Sarkeesian because she was trying to raise money on Kickstarter uh, to conduct a project into sexist tropes in video games. <laughs> Which, as we can tell from this game, is a completely outrageous idea. Um, and well, another reason I bring this up, I guess, is because the field that I work in, so I work in the field of democratic innovations, and increasingly people say to me, representative democracy is an outmoded technology. Um, now we've got the internet, we can all just vote online. Um, and you have to wonder if these people are using the same internet as the rest of us. <laughs> Whether they've seen what a cesspool of vitriol it often is. 
Um, I mean, has anyone ever looked at a YouTube video, read the comments underneath and thought, you know what would really be good? If these people could vote directly on the, <laughs> on the laws that govern our society. <laughs> so, we... <laughs> We've seen that the public are stupid, uh, crazy, and evil. So why do we want to involve them at all? And sometimes I do wonder. Why do I spend all my time trying to do it? So the history of democratic theory um, from ancient Greece till the present day, much of it has been about how do you realise popular control whilst avoiding, well, whilst making wise decisions which avoid mob rule. And I'm pleased to say that in the last 2,000 years, we have come up with some better ideas than let's just let everyone vote online. Um, so the great hope among democratic theorists, well, many democratic theorists at the moment, is deliberative democracy, um, in, which involves kind of creating lots and lots of different spaces for citizens to get involved in structured discussions and decision-making about social issues. And deliberative democracy does have its problems, but it does avoid... Some of, the, some of the issues that I've been talking about this evening. So when you involve women in well-structured discussion processes, they generally don't get rape threats and death threats. Um, and I mean, the, the process of discussion often actually breaks down barriers between people as well, as they get to understand each other's points of view. It also deals often with the kind of ignorance of public opinion. If you give people time to think about an issue and discuss it with other people, um, rather than just fox-popping them or polling them, then they usually come to a sensible decision. And often they actually come to more generous decisions as well. So there's wide uh, public support if you look at opinion poll data, for instance, in this country for benefits cuts. But when the DWP commissioned their own research uh, into what people think of the benefits system, and they gave them time to think about this issue and discuss it amongst themselves, most people actually concluded that uh, benefits were too low. <clears throat> There's also increasing research evidence uh, in a lot of different fields that if you bring together diverse groups of people with uh, different experiences and different views, they tend to actually make better decisions than small groups of experts who all have kind of similar viewpoints, opinions, and experiences. And this is because if you bring people together in a decision-making process, people with different experiences, different views, they're forced to kind of reflect on those views, explain them to others, take on the point of view of other people, and also kind of yeah, just kind of think about things a bit more deeply, I guess. Whereas if you bring together experts who all kind of have similar opinions already, what actually happens is the, the group decision-making process um, amplifies the biases that people bring to that. Bring to that. So it, they end up actually making more extreme decisions. Um, and I think this is actually an important lesson for a country like ours where almost, well, most of the important people in public life all have very similar social backgrounds and often went to the same two universities. So, I'd like to leave you with a last thought, which is kind of like a, a call to action, I guess. Um, obviously, Liz, Liz already gave us her manifesto, so hopefully we don't all give you a manifesto. <laughs> um, but democracy in this country is increasingly drifting towards plutocracy, where a small group of wealthy people dominate more and more of media and politics, um, and poor people kind of participate less and less. We're essentially becoming like the United States. Um, and this is causing like big economic and social problems already. And these problems are only going to get more difficult as we have to face up to climate change and have to make actually very, very difficult resource distribution decisions. And so if we want democracy to survive in the future, then we need to reinvent it. But we also need to take care of it. And we do that by participating in it. Thanks very much. All right. This next performer, um, I guess you, should, you could also call her my PhD sister because she also started with us. So, you know, good group of people to be with, yeah? Um, she is an amazing and brilliant person who is doing work on understanding religious identification amongst Muslim male offenders under probation services. Now, if that's not a tragic topic, I mean, thinking about it, <laughs> I find it quite tragic. Anything to do with the criminal justice system and its impact on people. I know there's a few criminologists in the room, but Lamia will take you through it. But 
one of the things she's going to talk about is how we construct postmodern identities, particularly when it comes to politics, because we've opened up ourselves and told you a lot about our politics, but that can have some consequences. Um, she doesn't have a website, but you can look her up on the LSE website. It is the amazing, wonderful Lamia Ephraim! Thank you, Liz. Um, I, I think I took the tragedy part a bit too seriously, so if I don't make you laugh, you know, write it off, write me off as the diversity act. <laughs> because, <you> know, <laughs> so, but um, I'm going to talk to you about um, contemporary identities. So how do we know who we are? What makes people, you know, how do we know that? And in um, social theory, we have this idea called postmodern identities. And it's this idea that we're fluid, flexible people. We're no longer stuck in, you know, categories that defined us before, such as class, gender, race. You know, we're free to make our choices, and those choices make us who we are. And it's great because, you know, it's, it's a sense that, you know, class, if you're not bound by class, it's the idea of social mobility. If you're not bound by race, that means there's no longer racism. And, you know, I mean, it's that, that choice is the cornerstone of society now and, you know, something to be celebrated. Um, but along with that, I mean, um, is this idea that... Um, I mean, while we can think that the bigger divisions have kind of disappeared, where you're no longer talking about class wars or race wars, or, you know, you can be male and feminist too, and so, you know, those kinds of divisions don't mean very much. But um, those divisions are very much still there, but they're kind of from a moment-to-moment -moment think. So every time you think about an issue, you make a decision, you know, that, that kind of division and that conflict kind of comes through. And I've, I want to kind of talk about the tragedy of decision-making. And, and for me, personally, it just seems that whatever way I look at things or decide about things, it somehow seems to end in tragedy. So quite recently, I mean, there was the elections that, um, like Liz, the Tory, um, you know, win. I, I went through a similar fe feeling of depression and kind of hopelessness. And, you know, and I thought, well, I need to get more political. And I joined the Labour Party. And, you know, um, I wasn't a Corbyn maniac. And I didn't do the three pounds. But, you know. <laughs> I went through the hustings and he made sense and, you know, he's talking about putting money into services that we care about and, you know, um, he see, his political career seemed like he was a guy of integrity and so I voted for him and I also liked him on Facebook and I think that was the bad thing <laughs> because obviously suddenly my identity got transformed and I was like a Trotskyite, I was a leftist loony, you know, I was anti-Semitic, I was pro-Bin Laden, I was supporting the IRA and, I mean, you know, that decision went with a lot of stuff. I was, <laughs> you know, that I didn't quite understand, actually. I was taking Britain back to the 80s, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a historian like Liz, and I'm not a political expert like Ricky, so, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm just a person making a simple choice. I didn't think this through, you know, I mean, I don't know about all of this stuff. And... That, you know, um, but, but that's just one kind of example of it. Another recent one is this idea of, you know, this kind of refugee crisis. Again, you know, it kind of seemed sensible to me. It's a humanitarian thing. And I thought, you know, yes, of course, we must be helping the refugees. But, and yes, I went again and, you know, I was kind of supporting this. And then it's like, oh, I don't, I don't care about the homeless in the UK. You know, I'm kind of destroying the NHS because it's suddenly all these people are going to flood in and our institutions will be destroyed. Um, I'm letting ISIL into Britain, you know, the Islamification will start and we'll all be dead and, you know, all of this stuff. And you're just, and, and I mean, and that was bad enough and I'm, that's kind of like, you know, going here. But then I made an even bigger mistake and I went and I said, well, you know, and again, it kind of made sense to me. I was thinking, well, you know, but what about these Arab states that are kind of also rich and doing quite well and closer to Syria? You know, shouldn't they be getting involved? and maybe we can talk about that. And, and suddenly I had another different kind of barrage coming at me from a different group and they're just like, oh, you've become too Western and you don't remember, you don't know anything about Saudi demographics. What about the Sunnis and the Shiites? And, you know, the Syrians are Shiites and the Saudis are Sunni and how can you expect them to live together? And, you know, all of that stuff. And what 
what about the war in Yemen and you know all of this stuff again and I'm just thinking well it you know they're close and they're rich and it just made sense I wasn't really <laughs> trying to say very much but you know and and suddenly and they're like oh you're you Europeans you're just crybabies and and that suddenly became a moment which I was like wow I've never been called European before you know <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm 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 British Pakistani I've lived here for 15 years but no one's ever called me European before and I'm thinking well is this a moment have I kind of arrived is this you know some kind of significant thing and um but of course, it's the worst possible time to be European in Britain, you know. I mean, the EDL and the BNP never took hold that kind of ideology the way the kind of UKIP anti-European ideology has taken hold. And so I'm thinking, well, there's another tragic political choice, and I've gone and done it again, and, you know, just, just shot myself in the foot for being European at the wrong time, you know, just when it went out of fashion. And, and, and so I'm kind of struck with this idea of tragedy in my tragic political choices, where I'm always on the wrong side of some division and you know whatever choice I make I seem to get this reaction which just seems you know kind of um, something I'm not prepared for and um, but along with that I mean in my own sense of tragedy I was also thinking about the research participants and as Liz was telling you I work with offenders and I was thinking their choices are kind of more tragic than mine and I was and I'm going to tell you a story about Dave he's one of the participants in my research and and some of the tragic choices that he made and what that meant for him. And Dave is a third generation Irish Catholic, lived, grew up in London, um, you know, had a fairly reasonable childhood up till the age of eight or nine when his parents split up. Um, he still kept in touch with both of them. He was in an Irish, a small Irish community neighborhood. All of his uncles and everyone lived nearby. Um, he would still see his dad on weekends, go to the pub with him. They'd sing Irish songs. You know, he'd carry his dad back home after they were thrown out of the pub and, you know, Things were going well until the age of 13, and at that time, his mum got into a relationship and he didn't really get along with this new partner. And so there was a lot of conflict in the home. His father's alcoholism was getting out of control. He really couldn't go to him. He didn't trust social services because every time they'd been involved in his life, they always blamed his mother and he didn't think that was fair. And so Dave ran away from home and he went to West, the, the West End of London and, and started living on the streets near Chinatown. Now he made friends um, in that area and he became interested in Buddhism and Kung Fu and converted to Buddhism, joined a Chinese gang and became a street thug working the streets of um, Chinatown, you know, collecting rent for the Chinese elders of his gang, selling drugs, making a reasonable amount of money, settled down, had a wife, didn't really get along with her, but has a son. And, um, and then there was this one big gang fight and this guy from the other gang had been really rude to one of the, you know, elders of his gang and he got really worked up and he had a machete and he just let loose and a lot of frustration that he had about a lot of things, he just let loose in this fight. And he ended up severely disabling the victim. Luckily, he didn't die. But Dave ended up going to prison for 16, on a 16-year sentence. And... In prison, I mean, things are going well for Dave. He's almost towards the end of his sentence, and he meets one of his Chinese friends, and this friend has converted, and he's now um, a Muslim. And Dave's like, okay, this makes, you know, this is interesting, what's happening here? And so he starts listening to what his friend is saying, and Dave converts as well. And so now Dave is Muslim in prison, Irish Catholic, converted to Islam in prison, after Buddhist Kung Fu, then, um, <laughs> but now a Muslim. And, and he's getting really into this. He likes the community. There's, you know, there's lots of other Muslims there. They look out for each other. He's the ideologies. He really likes the ideas. So he's, he's kind of committed to this thing. And then he moves to a prison. And this prison, they don't really, there seem to be some tensions between the Muslim prisoners and the guards. And then there's this, they ask for special privileges, which kind of go against the um, prison routine. And so there's that kind of tension is going on. And, and, and then the festival of Eid comes, and that kind of brings him things to an head because they're not let out of their cells on time and they're late for prayers and you know Dave's had enough Dave thinks I'm going to you know but he gets everybody together and he's like you know we're not going back to our cells we're going to you know we need to protest about this and let's have a sit-in and he's telling them all of this and you know everybody's like thinking yeah yeah it makes sense we're out of ourselves for a little bit longer and everyone's behind him and he's kind of arranged this kind of sit-in in prison and the prison guards are coming and saying what's going on 
and they're like, oh, we're not going back, we're protesting, you didn't let us out of our cells on time, and you know, we've been waiting all day, and blah, 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 and so they're just like, well, you know, we're not going to stop you, but I, when you come out, everyone's going into solitary, so you better be prepared, so. But Dave is really kind of inspiring people, saying, no, 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 stay put, and this is gonna work, and whatever. And a few hours into it, you know, um, everybody's kind of getting tired. They want to go back to their cells. They've got phone calls to make. They want their eat meal. They want to watch television. And they're just like saying, you know what, Dave? I mean, we've done enough. You know, we've protested. They hear us. You know, they know we're angry. So why can't we go back in? And he's like, no, no. Don't you know about the IRA and Bobby Sands? Two hours doesn't mean anything. You have to stay. You have to stay. They stay an hour longer. They're still they're, they're a bit fed up now. And you know, they're like, you know, Dave, this is enough. You know, you've you've done what you had to do. And you you know, where we really want to go. And he's still saying, no, no, you stay, we, we need to stay, we need to stay. And they literally push him out of the room. So other Muslims push him out of the room. He ends up in solitary, and now he's a radical prisoner. He's a radical Muslim because, you know, he's rioted. He's talked about Bobby, Bobby Sands and IRA, and he kind of arranged this kind of sit-in riot. And so he's getting all of this extra attention in prison as well. And. Um, Again, um, he, he kind of tries to calm down. He collects himself, moves away from all of this stuff, moves prison as well. Things are getting better, you know. He finds that um, this private prison was definitely not the place for him. And so he's kind of moved on. One of his Muslim friends finds him. Um, and so his ex-wife kind of left him when he converted as well. So they'd been having trouble. And she found that that was kind of the last straw. And um, she stopped him having contact with their son. And this is something he's kind of struggling with, but his um, his Muslim friend finds him a wife, and um, so now he has a Pakistani wife in prison, he marries, and slowly going through his sentence, Dave comes out, and... <clears throat> And when he's out in the community, it's a kind of a shock for him because he's kind of expecting the same kind of community in prison to be on the outside, yet he's not really fitting in. You know, there are all these kind of mosques where you have the Pakistani and the Somali and the sects and everything, and he doesn't really get that. He's kind of trying to remember what it was like in prison, and he's not really fitting in. And then his wife and him, they're, you know, they're adjusting. First he was in prison. They're kind of trying to find out. And again, that's something that he's not really sure about. He goes back to, you know, he reconnects with his family, um, you know, um, again in that and there with his conversion and his Pakistani wife, there's a kind of, you know, the white working class racism, he gets to hear a lot of things. Again, that's not an area where he fits. So Dave is left with this kind of um, sense of where does he belong and what is he doing and he's kind of done everything and he's still not sure where he fits in and, you know, he's tried all of these things and now he's kind of working in this kind of resettlement phase and still trying to figure out who he is and what that means and what his choices have meant for him, you know, and um, and that is a kind of a, a different level of tragedy to what I was kind of describing and what I go through. And um, and that's kind of, I was thinking that our lives are kind of going on in parallel ways and Dave's made all of these decisions and, you know, they've kind of impacted on his life and led him in places which, um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of uh, difficult to kind of untangle and think about. But along with that, I was thinking that we have... Um, this idea of, um, and I was thinking about other choices that people make, and, this, um, and I was thinking about the Syrian refugees and what kinds of choices they're making, you know, where um, their choice might be to, you know, um, stay and fight for Assad or join an ISIL or join another rebel group or kind of leave and live in a refugee camp. And, um, and you know, maybe they get picked as the 20,000 out of the 5 million of that, you know, will be to given political asylum, or they choose to kind of get on a boat, giving all their money to, you know, people smugglers to be put on an unsafe boat to come to this place which they don't know. And it just seems that whichever way you look at it, there's a lot of choice in modernity, but it seems to be laced with a lot of tragedy as well. And there's kind of, it just seems that whichever way you choose, they always, the choices seem to create those divisions and create those kind of sense of um, where you're crossing boundaries, but you're always on the other side of a boundary as well. And that kind of um, idea is what I'm going to leave you with tonight. So thank you. Thank you. For Lamia Irfan. Thank you.
Yeah. These guys, neither of them performed before. How brilliant are they? Yeah? Can we get another round of applause? Yeah. So I'm going to bring up the last act of my set, who is uh, sort of the other half of the education sandwich. Um, I guess I can call you my cousin by proxy, since I've decided to make you all my family, because he is a cousin of a very close friend and housemate of mine. Um, he's an educator, and he's a teacher. And we've had a lot of academics come up and talk about ideas and perceptions and identities. But he's going to talk about the policy area and what it's like to be in it. So he's been a teacher, an English teacher in central London for several years. He's shot through with hubris. And uh, you can find him at informutationblogspot.co.uk. Again, thanks, guys, for these websites. <laughs> and on Twitter at Informutation. Rob Price, everyone. No, this is fine. <laughs> Hello. Any teachers here? Yes. Ah. Getting good and pissed. It's Friday, isn't it? Okay. Um, I want to start with the, the teenage syllogism, if you're into logic. Um, I didn't do it, and I wasn't the only one. <laughs> oh. It's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So optimistic. I mean, they really think it's going to work. And then they think, if that doesn't work, I'll try the opposite. Which is the essence of tragedy. Um, I'm, an, I'm an English teacher, and I'm teaching one of well, my favorite tragedy at the moment, which is uh, Julius Caesar. I identify quite heavily with Caesar. <laughs> Which is fitting for a teacher, really. And there's a moment just before Caesar dies where he stands on the stage. He's surrounded by... He's in the Capitol. He's surrounded by the conspirators. And they're all carrying knives. And they're all about to kill him. And he says, I am constant as the northern star. I could be well moved if I were as you are. And then they all stab him to death. <laughs> and that's basically my job. Thanks, I've been robbed. No, no. <laughs> Is, you know, surrounded by these kids, you kind of think you're better than them in a way, in your, in your worst moments when you are shot through with hubris. I sent a kid an uh, essay the other day, and he bowled me over with the answer, this sixth former. I said, talk about Tony Harrison's V, which if you know has a lot of swears in it, so goes over well. And I said, talk about Tony Harrison's V, and tell me uh, how significant the proletariat and their language are to the author? I thought that was a pretty good question. All right, fine. <laughs> Tough crowd. But, <laughs> but, first paragraph. I am interested in the wording of this question and why the writer of the question has used the word there. <laughs> Well played, well played. <laughs> so, smart-ass sixth formers. We, probably a lot of us were them once. I brought a few things with me from the front lines of the welfare state. That is my lanyard. That's mine. Yeah, ooh. <laughs> Much coveted. You, you really want one, and then when you've got one, you're like, oh, I'm not sure now. I like the lanyard as a thing, as an institution. It says, we neither know nor particularly care who you are, but we just want to be very sure you're not a paedophile. So, I've got one of them. Let's see what else. Um, Hubris. Yeah, I, I think hubris is important. I think, you should, I think kids should know about hubris. They should understand it. Uh, Sophocles said, Zeus hates with a vengeance all bravado, the mighty boasts of men. In Antigone, he says that. It's true. It's true. No, it is true. You just, just at that moment where you're like, I am the Don. I am really fucking good at teaching. I am a fucking amazing teacher. Just at that moment, that's when you have that lesson 
where they're doing the electric slide across the desk and, you know, chairs. I've never had a chair fly. The old desk has gone over. <laughs> it's good. It's a good job. People, people have this sort of pornographic fascination with the bad lesson. Tell me about the bad lessons, they say. And I think, actually, it's a lot of fun. Um, no, it is. I don't, I don't want to tell the stories about the kids who have shit home lives. I mean, they do have shit home lives. They, now, I give them one of these, which is a report. And I say, report to me. Report to me every day. Tell me how your lessons went. And they might, and they do. And they tell me how their lessons go. But the most important thing to me is that they're really funny and that I like seeing them. And one thing I do want to talk about is how annoying it is that they make films about teaching when no one ever has to sit in a two-hour staff meeting. <laughs> Michelle fucking Pfeiffer never marks a single fucking book. <laughs> that whole film. I quite like the one with Ryan Gosling where he's a crackhead. That's a good one, if you've seen that. But I'm going to read you something I wrote. There is, and this is, this is really tragic, there is a teacher blogging community. Don't delve. You don't... <laughs> Ugh, it's gross. But um, I, do, I do occasionally dab, dip my toes in it. So as you, as you may or may not know, under the prevent strategy, the government is in the process of transforming my role into being a sort of immigration inspector come thought policeman. <laughs> Which is cool. That's what I wanted to do when I was a lad. So it's good. Um, and one of the things I have to do now is instill fundamental British values. Not fundamentalist British values, that would be bad. <laughs> if you leave the ist off, it's all good. So I've, I've written this for newly qualified teachers to help them with this arduous task. So if you'll indulge me. So you are a newly qualified teacher. And you're unsure whether you are really ready to whip a class up into a frothing brew of jingoistic nationalism. <laughs> Fear not. You're not alone. Luckily, the government has done all the difficult thinking about ethics for you, so that's good. If you are, however, still too poor, stupid, or foreign to understand the difference between right and wrong, then simply follow this easy-to-use guide and you'll have the pupils getting misty-eyed over pints on the village green in no time. <laughs> One. Have a British Prime Minister word search ready to go. At all times. Two. Remember, the best way to teach young and possibly foreign children about democracy is to give them no experience of it whatsoever. <laughs> Three, line the class up before every class for as long as it takes you to scream the national anthem at them, then let them in. <laughs> if they're unsilent, try Jerusalem as well, that should do it. <laughs> Number four, is your picture of David Cameron's massive shiny face massive enough? <laughs> Consider getting a larger one. <laughs> Five, establish strong expectations early by reading the Constitution in its entirety. It is true that the British Constitution is uncodified, so to be on the safe side, just read every British law ever passed since the Magna Carta. They will respect you for it. Six, remember that most children are tiny Xbox-obsessed terrorists and should be treated accordingly. Number seven, don't mention God. God, don't mention God, no. <laughs> Number eight, even foreign gods, especially not foreign gods. God, no, are you mental or something? Don't do that. <clears throat> Number nine, don't be afraid of asking for support from people who are more British than you are. <laughs> They'll understand. After all, they were less British ones. That's a joke. <laughs> Number 10, don't lose your cool. Just do what the British have always done. 
Keep members of the underclass on constant standby, ready to inflict maximum misery upon your enemies whilst affecting surprise and dismay that it had to come to this. <laughs> Thanks very much. Rob Price. And that's it for tragic schooling. Um, and that's it for me. Actually, that's the end of me and, and stand-up tragedy for the foreseeable future. Um, some of us have to go and finish a PhD. It's these guys, it's not me. Um, I just wanna say thank you for the last four years. It's been amazing, it's been wonderful, it's, it's been a family. It's a chance for me to explore, to grow, and to be my other self, who isn't just that academic. And uh, thank you for all that, and I look forward to everything you do in the future. So I guess after a short break of 10 minutes, because I am surprisingly running over, um, we'll be back with the final set, uh, Tragic Fall. Thank you very much. Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. You can like us on Facebook or friend the tragedy on Facebook to stay all up to, uh, dated for the, all of the shows that are coming up. Uh, this is the last show of 2015 that we're doing, but we will be coming back in 2016. And we do have a special Stand Up Tragedy Presents, which is happening on the 16th of November at the Dog Star in Brixton. A double bill, my show about uh, men and how shit we are and how hard it can be for to beat us. Both those things at the same time. Uh, and a show uh, by AJ McKenna called uh, Howl of the Banty. To go. Stephen Harvey with 
music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. Thank you.